Creative Legals, the show that helps you understand the law around property investment, whether you are a vanilla landlord or doing creative deals. Because what you do not know could cost you. Creative Legals, law for creative deals. Joining us now, your host, Julie Condliffe, the legal diva, successful property investor and specialist property litigation solicitor. Hey, thank you so very much for joining me again today, where we continue our discussions on evictions. In particular, we discuss how to successfully and speedily evict your tenant. So, as for my previous podcast, as a landlord, I feel that it's highly unlikely that you'll be able to successfully evict your tenants anytime before 2021. That's on the premise that serving an eviction notice post the eviction ban, which is August 2020, means that your initial notice would expire in 2020. That's because, well, November 2020. That's because you have to give three whole months notice, remember, because of the regulatory changes. So if you serve your notice, post the ban, you serve it end of August, September time, you give three months, that's going to take you to November. Thereafter, if the tenant does not vacate the property, you would then need to issue court proceedings. The process between issuance of the proceedings and receiving a possession order has been on average six to eight weeks, sometimes longer. This, of course, is dependent on how busy the court is and whether or not your paperwork is in order. It also depends on whether or not the tenant has filed a defence, in which case the matter could be protracted for months and months and months, 12 months, or, you know, in some cases, even longer. So if you issue court proceedings in the middle or the latter part of November, you're unlikely to get a possession order this side of Christmas. You and I know that the possession order, even after the possession order, if the tenant does not vacate the property, you will still need to make another court application. You need to get a warrant for possession. In light of the potential avalanche of possession proceedings, further delays are likely. So, I think we need to put our best foot forward to ensure that we stand a fighting chance of succeeding in this eviction battle. I feel that that's the only way to you. How do you feel? Share your feelings with me. Share your thoughts with me. I value those. Now we've finished (laughs) the feelings part. We're now going to focus on the facts. So let's focus on some facts that will help us. Focus on facts, not on feelings. Focus on facts, not on feelings, okay? I have to remind myself that constantly because sometimes my feelings get the better of me. But now it's time for us to focus on just the hardcore facts. So the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government indicator that the government is working with 
the master of the roles to widen the existing pre-action protocol on position proceedings for social landlords. It seems the government plan is to require us as private landlords to adhere to the same rules as social landlords before issuing position proceedings. Now, once the current moratorium on issuing eviction proceedings has ended, a protocol will apply to private landlords. We don't know the form or the exact wording of the said protocol, but I think it's reasonable to assume that it will follow the existing pre-action protocol on position proceedings for social landlords. With that in mind, it would be prudent for us to explore the provisions of that particular pre-action protocol and proactively take practical steps to ensure we're in compliance with it. Do you agree? Let me know what your thoughts are. The key thing here is, while we may not be able to follow the letter of the law, surely we must be able to follow the spirit of the law. I'm going to help you do that by taking the steps I outline to you shortly. You should be in a better position to successfully and speedily evict your tenant if necessary. Necessary being the operative word. Remember, evictions should only be considered as a last resort. Take, for example, John. John is a 37-year-old fitness instructor. He used all of his income to start out this property investment journey. All his hope was in his property investment journey. This is his first property. It's his main source of income, especially now that the gyms have been shut down per the government directive to try and help contain the virus. As soon as the eviction ban was announced, guess what? John's tenant contacted him to let him know that he won't be paying the rent anymore. The rental on this particular London apartment was £1,500 per month. John's tenant, Robert, who had been furloughed, is on a full salary because his employer subsidises the difference. So there's no real reason why Robert should be defaulting on the rental payments. But he is. John attempted to negotiate a reduced rent, but Robert, mm -mm, he was not amenable to that. So John finds himself in an unenviable set of circumstances. Then you've got Rosemary on the other hand. She took on three rent-to-rent -rent deals. All her properties are four-bedroomed HMOs. Out of her 12 tenants, only four of them have paid rent. She's got eight defaulting tenants. They pay an average of around £500 per month. So she's out of pocket by £4,000 per month. And this is a rent-to-rent -rent deal, rent-to-rent -rent strategy, so there's no mortgage. That means no payment holiday is on the horizon. 
her superior landlord is demanding the full rent for the properties. You don't blame him, do you? Or do you? In fact, he wants his property back with vacant possession. Now, Rosemary's desperate. She's desperate to recover the arrears and to give the property back. But we know that the properties are fully tenanted. So, she'll need to evict the tenants first. What does she do? What are her options? How how does she handle this? So you and I are going to explore that together. And again, keep your comments coming. I really want you to engage with me as far as practicably possible. So in both scenarios, we want to ensure that Rosemary and John are able to lawfully, successfully and speedily evict their tenants. In light of their circumstances, I think it's necessary to evict the tenants. Do you think these situations warrant evictions? Again, do let me know. Share your thoughts. So how do they act then? How does John, how does Rosemary, how do they act in accordance with the spirit of the pre-action protocol, which is yet to be enacted? The housing minister said the protocol, which will apply at the end of the moratorium, will enable tenants to have an added degree of protection because instead of embarking upon the eviction proceedings immediately, there will be a duty upon landlords to reach out to tenants to discuss their situation and to try to agree an affordable repayment plan. He further suggested that this will then enable tenants to remain in their homes and to deal with the rent, uh, which they haven't been able to pay. So it's worth noting here that the pre-action protocol for possession claims by social landlords kind of like mirrors what the housing minister is saying because the pre-action protocol is intended to encourage more pre-action contact and exchange of information between landlords and tenants. It's intended to enable the parties to avoid litigation by settling matters, if at all possible. It's intended to enable the court time to use more effectively. So really, they just don't want the court's time to be wasted. Um, so those are the specific intentions of the possession claims by social landlord pre-action protocol which we consider would be mirrored um, in possession proceedings for private landlords in the next few months. So as landlords, we must be able to demonstrate that we've exhausted all reasonable options to resolve the area situation with the tenant prior to commencement of any court proceedings. That is crucial. So I'm going to share with you seven steps to be able to get you ahead of the game, to be able to help you to successfully and speedily evict your tenants, to be able to help you to always be that one step ahead of the game, to give you that competitive edge. Because here at Creative Legals, we are faster, we are smarter, and we are better. So step one, assume you have a duty to reach out to your tenants to discuss the situation, because that is what we are encouraged to do. 
if, as in cases we've just made reference to, the tenant falls into arrears, the landlord should contact the tenant as soon as is reasonably possible to discuss the following four points. One, the reason behind the arrears. So what is the cause of the arrears? Two, the tenant's financial circumstances. Three, the tenant's entitlement to benefits. And then four, repayment of the arrears. So those are the four points that a landlord will be required to discuss with a tenant at step one. Communicate, you must, with each named tenant individually rather than addressing them jointly. Where the contact is by letter, as a landlord, you should write separately to each named tenant. You need to ensure you can evidence the communication. I would therefore suggest writing letters. When sending the letters out, I would encourage you to send them by recorder delivery or at least to get proof of postage. Text messages are good as long as you can keep a record of them. So are WhatsApp messages. Do keep a log of all the communication that you have um, between yourself and your tenants. That is equally important. Step two, try to negotiate and agree an affordable payment plan. As a landlord, you should try to agree affordable sums for the tenant towards the rental arrears. So it's not the figure that you want, but it is a figure that is affordable to the tenant. Affordability will be based upon the tenant's income and expenditure. Um, so you may want to ask your tenant to complete an income and expenditure fact sheet. And then clearly set out any time limits with which the tenant should comply with that particular payment plan. Step three, provide an easy to understand rent account statement showing all payments due and any payments which have been received. The protocol states that you should provide rent statements on a quarterly basis. Well, I say do it monthly um, because, yeah, it just makes more business sense, doesn't it? I'm sure you agree. Um, so the rent statements must be in a comprehensible format showing the rent due and the sums received. Upon request, you should be able to provide the tenant with copies of the rent statements from the date the arrears first arose. So in relation to the rent statements, you must show three things. One, the amount of rent due. Two, the dates the rent is due. Three, the amount of all the payments made. This is whether the payments were made through housing benefit, discretionary housing payments, or directly by the tenant. And you should also provide a running total of the arrears. All that is almost as good as mandatory, so just do it if you can. And then step four. If you're aware that the tenant is particularly vulnerable, you should consider an, uh, really at an early stage 
whether or not the tenant has the mental capacity to take part in the proceedings. Um, and that's important. You also need to think about equality issues under the Equality Act 2010. I've had some really interesting cases under the Equality Act 2010. So that is quite important to look into that. Step five, consider whether your tenant may be entitled to universal credit and become a DWP policing officer. I say that because if a tenant meets the relevant criteria, you as a landlord should apply for the arrears to be paid by deductions from the tenant's benefit. So you apply to the DWP, which is obviously the Department for Work and Pensions. You should also offer to assist the tenant in any claim that the tenant may have for housing benefits, discretionary housing payments or universal credits, of course, the universal, sorry, the housing element of that. The government website should be able to give you guidance. It helps, but I don't think it goes far. It gives you guidance on how best to help your tenants. Uh, this could be by encouraging them to go online to set up an email account. It could be by helping them open a bank account to receive the universal credit payments. So it's practical things like that. All this is important. That's why I say you will become a DWP policing officer. It's important because possession proceedings for rent arrears should not be started against a tenant who can show that there's a reasonable expectation of eligibility for getting those benefits, you know, the housing universal and all the ones that we've talked about, universal um, credit, but also possession proceedings cannot be started against a tenant who can show that the local authority or DWP have been provided with all the evidence required to process a claim. Do you see? And you also can't start position proceedings against a tenant where they have paid other sums due that are not covered by housing benefit or universal credit. So quite a lot of factors there for you to, to, to consider. But I think the key thing is if your tenant is entitled, if your tenant meets the relevant criteria, then you really need to seriously engage in that process. As a landlord, you should make every effort to establish effective ongoing liaison with the housing benefit departments and the DWP. Of course, you need the uh, tenant's consent to make direct contact with the relevant bodies, but it's imperative that you do so. Otherwise, you won't be entitled to issue court proceedings. Step six, you want to take reasonable steps to ensure that the tenant understands the information that you've given them, that they understand the information that's been provided to them, because there's no point talking to yourself, is there? Uh, you need to make sure that the tenant understands that which you're communicating to them. For example, 
if you're aware that the tenant has difficulty in reading or understanding what you're saying, you must take every reasonable step to ensure that the tenant understands the information given. So if the tenant is foreign, maybe you could consider getting interpretation of the documents in that particular language. So you could do that formally, but you've also got Google uh, Translate. Google does a lot of amazing things. Um, so yeah, I've utilized that with, with some of my own um, tenants and um, hopefully I should be able to share some of the links to assist you. But the requirement here is that you must be able to demonstrate that reasonable steps have been taken to ensure that the information has been appropriately communicated in ways that the tenant can understand. Step seven. If you've taken all of the steps, you've dotted the I's and crossed the T's, then I personally consider that you should be in a position to issue an eviction notice. Of course, the parties are required to provide evidence to the court that you've explored alternative means of resolving the dispute before taking that step to issue court proceedings. So always try to negotiate settlement beforehand. And I think we've explored that um, subject. So courts take the view that litigation should be a last resort and that claims should not be issued prematurely when a settlement is actively still being explored. Being in a position to serve a notice is brilliant. But you want to make sure that you serve a valid notice to be able to successfully and speedily evict your tenant. So you want to make sure that you serve the correct notice. You want to make sure that you give the requisite notice period. You want to make sure that you provide all the supporting relevant material. You want to make sure that you've complied with the service provisions. So you want to just make sure that you get it right at the outset. I've done and I will be doing a lot more podcasts on this particular subject matter. I'll be showing you exactly how to get it done the right way. But as always, if you need my assistance, you know exactly how to get hold of me. My details are always provided. The key point here is, through experience, I've learned that what you do not know could cost you. Imagine serving a notice and waiting three months, then issuing court proceedings, and then after a period of five months, six months, being told that the notice that you served is invalid, that would cost you a lot more than just instructing somebody who does this day in, day out, somebody who knows exactly how it's done. So if you need assistance with this, do let me know. I'll be more than happy to help you serve the notices, obviously at a cost. But anyway, I love bonuses. So I'm going to give you a bonus step number eight. After service of the notice, but before issuing the court proceedings, you as a landlord should continue to make reasonable attempts to contact the tenant to discuss Again, the amount of arrears, the cause of the arrears, repayment of the arrears and the housing benefit or universal credit 
position. So this has to be a continuing thing. We don't just do it before we issue the notices and forget about it. We have to continue doing that. And then if the tenant complies with an agreement to pay the current rent and a reasonable amount towards the arrears, then you as a landlord should agree to stay the proceedings. You should agree to postpone even issuing court proceedings for as long as the tenant keeps to the agreement. So if the tenant then fails to comply with such an agreement, you still need to send them a warning letter, a warning text, warning communication of your intention to bring proceedings and then give the client clear time limits within which to comply with that again to avoid court proceedings. So I'm sure you found this helpful. Give us a review on the relevant platforms that you are listening uh, to this. But most importantly, please share, subscribe and yeah, engage with me and let's keep going. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on Creative Legals. Remember, what you do not know could cost you. Stay up to date. Subscribe to our weekly updates using the links below. Remember, what you do not know could cost you. CreativeLegals.com Faster. Smarter. Better. Better.